We have the verdict. Uh, he has been found guilty of both counts, Ashley. I've got to say, shock in the courtroom. Guilty of uh, conspiracy to commit kidnapping of women. Also guilty of uh, wrongfully accessing a federal database. I can tell you that the entire defense team was clearly shocked. They all slumped forward at the same time. The defendant completely grief-stricken. His mother in the courtroom kept on shaking her head no. His father almost folded onto himself in a state of disbelief. The courtroom was absolutely packed, but I will say that most courtroom observers that have been following this case day in and day out with me were very, very surprised at this verdict. You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. I'm happy to have on the show Gil Valley. Uh, Gil is well known on the internet and also in media as the cannibal cop. Uh, He's the guy who, uh, after seven years of serving in NYPD, got arrested and thrown into prison for 21 months because he had some sexually explicit conversations online where he fantasized about kidnapping, abusing, and eating several women. Basically, he went into some pretty gruesome details online with uh, some other people. And the FBI thought that that was enough cause to go and arrest him. They believed that it was proof of a conspiracy for him and a bunch of other people uh, to go get some women and put them into massive ovens and torture rooms in his country home. Uh, Unfortunately, the country home does not seem to have existed, nor do the torture rooms, uh, nor do the ovens. And so Gill's case is actually interesting because it is a thought crime case. It's similar to the Minority Report movie, uh, if you've ever heard of that. Gill was actually completely exonerated for all of this, though, later on. The case fell, fell apart completely. Uh, that was after over 21 months in prison. And um, so Gil's working now to try and put his life back together again, trying to get something back from the government for all of this. Before we get started, I'd like to recommend a podcast to you. It's called In Your Face with Donnie and Grace. It's actually the interview on this podcast with Gil that led me to want to speak to Gil personally. If you like this show, uh, listen, you're probably going to also like In Your Face with Donnie and Grace. Now, without further ado, let's jump right into the interview with Gil Valley. He joins me from a cold rainstorm uh, in his car in New York City. Gil, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. And it's funny that you mentioned Minority Report. I can't tell you from the day I was arrested through the whole case how many times that movie has been brought up. 
I remember I watched it earlier on when I was uh, much younger, and it was just basically, I think they, they had this way to either look in the future or based on some, like, computer heuristic, they were able to figure out, like, you, you know, you were thinking about something, and then they would run some probability, and if you they thought you were more probable than not to do it, they'd go ahead and they'd preemptively take you out. They'd put you in jail or, or whatever. And that's kind of exactly what happened to you. Yeah, pretty much a very scary thought. Um, it's been a very interesting case. I, of course, wish it wasn't me in the center of it. Um, but it is a, an interesting case. The legal community has been very fascinated by it, as are people who are interested in the whole true crime uh, realm. Um, so, yeah, it's a very interesting case. It was the first of its kind. No one had ever been arrested and charged with a crime that hadn't been committed. You, you actually write about this in your book. It's a book that you co-wrote with your friend, um, Brian Whitney, right? Yes, that, yes, that's right. He is uh, actually, he's known uh, as a ghostwriter, and he had uh, contacted me through my lawyer well after the case was resolved and I had been exonerated. Um, we talked, and uh, you say friend. Now, now we're friends. When we first started, he was a, a, a ghostwriter. He was going to write the book in my voice, but as we got to working together, um, I guess he realized, and more so I realized, uh, that I was actually a pretty good writer. So it was more of a co-author kind of thing where I wrote half the book basically from the time I was in prison on and he ghost wrote the first half of the book. It's called Raw Deal, the untold story of NYPD's cannibal cop. And I guess we want to maybe take a little step back here for those of us who might maybe miss the press, but even I remember catching this press uh, back in 2012 it was a it was a big deal uh basically your wife discovered some bdsm stuff on on the computer that you were sharing with her because i think either one of your guys's computer was in the shop or something so you're sharing your computer and she just came across this this website that's what kind of i guess started off this whole situation in a way right can you can you explain what happened on that night yeah she had uh i guess i had left the uh, computer open or i forgot mm -hmm. to close a website or something and the next morning she found uh, what i was looking at it was a regular quote-unquote regular bdsm kind yeah. of vanilla bondage website and she was uh, i was more embarrassed than anything um, of course. But she actually, uh, my wife, uh, Kathleen, she actually felt worse than I did. She felt bad that she had stumbled upon it. Uh, not so much that she was scared. She felt, she thought that I would be upset that she was maybe snooping around. And it was just, uh, we both felt really terrible. But she was actually a bit receptive of it. We had talked about maybe spicing up our life in the bedroom. And it, it, long story short, it went better than I ever could have expected. Um, yeah. So we had uh, spoken about that and it was a little bit of a load off of my shoulders. Um, then a couple of weeks later, uh, she'd installed some spyware. I mean, I'm, I'm skipping some parts here, obviously yeah. in the interest of time, but um, 
so yeah, she found the BDSM stuff and it went okay. It, you know, it wasn't a complete nightmare scenario like it turned into a couple of weeks later. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> there's nothing unusual about um, a partner, especially a wife, finding porn on uh, uh, her man's computer. I mean, that's like everyday normal, but I guess that situation kind of... <laughs> you know, piqued her, her concern or what have you, because, uh, from what I, based on what I read, you know, you were spending a fair amount of time uh, on the computer and she was like, she had some concerns that you were actually fooling around or something. And so she installs this spyware, which, which, you know, to be honest, in my opinion, that drives me nuts. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to like, rag on her too much i mean but uh it's a uh, why would you do that why would you install spyware but anyway the thing is what happened then was uh she found your involvement on this uh, uh fetish website i think it's called dark fetishes.net right or dark dark fetish uh dark right net.com and that and that's what we're all like, basically all shit broke loose at that point, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I had worked nights. As uh, you mentioned, I was a patrol cop. I worked from uh, 4 p.m. to midnight. Uh, so when I got home, you know, someone still kind of wound up, just been home from work. You know, I, I never went right to sleep. And people who work that shift generally don't go right to sleep. I was in bed by uh, three or four o'clock, um, you know, late, late, late slash early morning. Uh, it wasn't every night I was on the computer. Sometimes I would watch a movie on TV. I had a PlayStation. I'd, I'd play Madden or, or whatever. Maybe a couple times a week I would be on Dark Fetish Net involved with the role play chats of fantasies about the very disturbing subject matter of, like as you mentioned, kidnapping, cooking, eating women. Um, all of that was in a fantasy scenario, a fictional scenario. I obviously never expected any of this to be out. And, um, like, I mean, you hit it on the head. Kathleen was concerned about what I was doing on a computer. She was thinking that I was involved in some kind of affair. And what she found absolutely horrified her. And I completely understood that. I never faulted her for being scared or, you know... I never faulted her for the way she reacted at all. I mean, for someone to stumble into that world, yeah, um, never knowing it existed, horrifying, you know? So I never, um, I never faulted her for that at all. It was a very rough day when she uh, woke me up and confronted me about it, which she was crying and I was, I just didn't know what, to say to calm her down um she had made up her mind that she was gonna take uh our daughter and go to her parents house uh, just to get away for a while um you know it, it, it was portrayed that she just kind of stormed out of the house left with nothing but the clothes off her back and i mean that wasn't true she spent three four hours we talked she packed up yeah uh the initial goal was to been suggested by her was that we were going to go find a couple's therapist and 
talk all this stuff out. Obviously, she had found that I had been aroused by some things that a lot of people aren't aroused by. Um, but unfortunately, law enforcement got involved, and that's when really things got really, really bad. Once they started to talk to her about what was going on or what they thought was going on, um, that was it. Once she kind of flipped that switch, or once they flipped that switch in her head, you know, that, that was the end of it. I mean, what she found was snuff porn plus cannibalism, that kind of thing, and also uh, role-playing, like online um, chats with uh, other people. And uh, yeah. I guess, like, the part that probably might have freaked her out the most was that i mean you you had used uh some of pictures Photos. of her and also of some yeah. of her friends from facebook i mean you didn't you didn't use her first or last name or anything like no one knew your actual name or her actual name but at the same time i guess just seeing those pictures it was like a bridge gone too far for her at that point um, yeah, and that's the part, you know, the language of the chats was extremely graphic and right. disturbing. Uh, that's one thing, but the fact that, for, and this is the part that bothers me the most when I talk about my behavior and what I did was the fact that, like, as, as you mentioned, photos of women from my life were used as part of those stories Yeah, where, and, you know, I took measures to protect them as you said i didn't use their names i didn't use my name nothing it was all understood that this was just a fantasy chat a fictional chat um but the fact that the photos were used and they are real people that is what kind of disturbed people the most and that's what makes me very uncomfortable again reliving yeah. Yeah, everything. But let me back let me back that up by saying, and, and I'm not trying to make this sound like a cop out or anything, but uh, people are aroused by all kinds of different things. I mean, I've since all this happened, I've read a lot about paraphilias and just the unusual things that people are aroused by. And the subject of people's sexual fantasies are most likely more often than not people in their own lives. Yeah. So yeah, I just would. like, you know, someone's fantasy about whatever, uh, you know, sniffing a woman's pantyhose or whatever, they're going to imagine a woman in, her, in, in, in his or her life, you know, and kind of center the fantasy around that person. Now, you know, my fantasies were disturbing, graphic, but the fact that they involved women in my life, that wasn't unusual. The unusual part was just what I'm aroused by. And it's not something that I choose or people choose. It just kind of you discover through experience, through looking at things, you know, the whole nature, nurture thing. It's, um, it's a you know, I, I, I wish I was a, yeah, yeah. It's not something people choose. It's, you know, if I had been able to choose, I would have picked something a lot different like, to be around. Like clowns by. or balloons or something, you know? <laughs> some, yeah, some I mean, people, there are people, there are people who, you know, uh, dendrophilia is the fetish of being aroused by the thought of having sex with a tree. 
<laughs> you know, why couldn't I get that one? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you might, you might, um, as long as your trees are inside. I, I mean, um, when you first, I would have got in trouble for you. Yeah, I, I would have got in trouble for using pictures of trees from the neighborhood <laughs> in the role play chats. <laughs> when I, when I, anyway. well, I'm just thinking about this now. I'm trying to put myself in the sh- my sh- your shoes. Let let's say I I transport myself back to uh, when I'm 15 or my 14 or 13 or something, and I'm just kind of waking up to what turns me on. And um, I mean, I'm just thinking about you know. I'm watching for you. I I read that you there was like a Cameron Diaz scene in the movie The Mask where like she was tied yeah. up and that kind of did something for you and and that's way more common than people would think. Like the whole tying up thing, it's like a it's like something that happens and like it's big in like you know Japanese uh, and like Japanese porn and animation, especially over there, like to tie people up over there. But what I'm getting at, sure. what I'm getting at is, I'm just trying to think of like what what I would do because, like you know, I'm I come to the realization that wait a minute, um, I'm turned on by you know making elaborate plans about kidnapping women, and you know tying them up or or binding them and then possibly even like injure um um, eating them rather and like i I don't know i'm thinking about what how that would work with me i think that i'd be like holy fuck man i'm turned on by this like how i can never do this like like this this is scary or this sucks like did you did you ever like kind of say like were you scared when you first started to realize that this stuff like uh got you going well, I get into the whole progression in the book, and I don't want to spend too much okay, time on it. Yeah. But you mentioned the Cameron, you know, well, you mentioned the Cameron Diaz scene, and it was just bondage in general. That's how it kind of started when I hit puberty. Yeah, I realized I was being aroused by women being tied up in TV shows or movies, and it's not something I ever talked about. I mean, I thought that was weird enough. Yeah, uh, I, I was a kid who went to Catholic school. We didn't really talk about sex much in the house and i just thought that yeah i i just (laughs) i just thought that um all right this is something kind of weird and that was just when it was when it was just the the, the whole bondage part i said this is something that's kind of weird i'm not just gonna i'm not gonna talk about it i'll be labeled as some kind of a freak you know i'll be made fun of in school it's just something i kept to myself and i was completely fine keeping it to myself because it never affected who i was and who i am in my everyday life i was a mm-hmm. very good baseball player i had a lot of friends growing up in school high school i was a popular kid in high school and you know on to college i was a dean's list student i mean nothing about my fantasies affected anything in any way what was going on in my real life it was something i was able to compartmentalize you know kind of yeah. leave the fantasy stuff in one box and live my real life on the side and you know, any of your listeners who want to do some research on this whole phenomenon where people are aroused by certain things, they never want to talk about it, and they're able to, you know, just to live their lives with, with, with these unusual things. It, it, I've learned it's a lot more common yeah. than people think, even more common than I would have ever thought. You know, there was a lot of paperwork filed as part of my case, um, some of it was this literature about research that has been done into these paraphilias and people who are aroused by sadistic images and sadistic stories who are completely normal 
people in their everyday lives and who just would ch rather not have it known that they're aroused by these kinds of things. Now, for me, that skeleton's out of the closet, yeah. not by my doing. It's just unfortunate that it happened. But, you know, I went through a complete nightmare. My life has been ruined. My wife, my daughter, you know, they're gone. And my job, my career is gone. Everything that it's like a whole new life. I've had to pick up the pieces and start over with you know, these fantasies still being very much a part of my life. Uh, but on a positive note, I've found that people have been reaching out to me, people who are aroused by certain things who are, who just kind of, you know, it's unfortunate that they, that they see me as this kind of knight in shining armor, this someone who was sacrificed, to, you know, to go through the legal system and win in the legal system. Yeah. Despite how vile my fantasies were and are, um, you know, so I have gotten more support than I ever could have imagined as a result of this case. But, you know, there, there is a day that goes by that I don't wish I, yeah, I, I know I'm going on and on now. I, you know, I, I just, every day I wake up and I wish I had my old life back uh, the way it was. Yeah, you, you know, um, it's kind of interesting because, um, I mean, I read Marky Desad and... Um, sure. It's not really like some of the stuff other than the cannibalism, right? Which I can't remember if there's any of that in Marky Desad or not. Um, uh, if you uh, read the story of uh, Just Justin, Justine, I don't know. There's like there's like all kinds of stuff like that in Marky Desad. So it's not like this is new stuff. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that other people out there are are into this. You wanna. It doesn't surprise me at all. And it's interesting also that when you are, were on this um, board talking to other people, there was a, a guy in, in, in England that you spoke to, a guy, I think, in uh, Pakistan or something, etc. Um, yeah. You guys, like, it's like you guys were doing a... Um, like a D&D, &D. like you, you guys were do, like going on a, like you were, you were building this narrative together uh, around, uh, around real people. And yeah. as well, uh, I mean, when people are fantasizing about uh, wanting to do like, you know, just fantasizing, it's also people, a lot of people, I don't know, uh, you know, Amateur porn is is popular for a reason because it's like the girl next door. Of course, you're gonna, sure. you're going to be thinking about things that are plausible, right? You're not going to be thinking about like you know th those those uh, pornos where where you've got like everybody walking around. They look like uh, you know supermodels. I mean, that's not real. Yeah. You want real? Well, I think yeah. No, sure. And I, I know exactly what you're getting at. And I think there are a couple of factors at play, at least speaking from my perspective. Number one, uh, I was an anonymous person. No one knew my name, what I did for a living. So that helped kind of embolden what I was writing, you know, right? I had no fear of some, anyone ever finding out, shit, this is uh, Gil, the NYPD cop who's writing this stuff online. This was all done anonymously. That's number one. Number two... Like you mentioned, the, the, the whole realistic nature is what made it titillating. And that combined with the fact that it was kind of done 
in an, an anonymous way where people didn't know who I was. People didn't know my name, nothing like that. Um, in that setting, you kind of, you're writing this, you're collaborating on this role play, this story with another person and they come back with something that's like, Oh crap. Like, you know, let me see if I can outdo it with something more vile and more graphic. And yeah. it's something that would play out over days and weeks at a time. Um, this, like, these were ongoing stories where if I was online and they were online, we just kind of pick up where we left off. And, you know, we spoke about kind of r very realistic sounding things. We had dates, right, where we were supposed to kidnap the girl and bring her back to my place and then, you know, rape her and cook her and all that stuff. And uh, these dates would come and go and nothing would happen and there wouldn't be any follow-up where you would think in, in a real conspiracy which is what i was charged with i was charged in a kidnapping conspiracy a real conspiracy would involve the person in england saying hey you know november 24th we were supposed to grab her what, what happened you know there was no yeah, because exactly it, there was none of that because it because it was understood that this was all a fictional scenario uh, you know and a real conspiracy would also involve me knowing the person's name, his phone number, <laughs> him knowing me. I mean, none of this stuff happened. They charged me in a conspiracy, but there there wasn't even close to a, any conspiracy at play here. Now, you know, I am all for conspiracy laws. You wouldn't want somebody to get hurt. You, you want to stop the horrible act before it actually happens. So I'm not somebody who thinks law enforcement shouldn't be proactive and stop a horrible thing from happening, but there actually has to be a real conspiracy to speak of. The, this is me, a guy in Pakistan, a guy in England. Neither one of us know who the hell each other are. You know, he's a, <laughs> it was just so crazy and just the whole scope of it where they basically charged me with being Tony Montana and controlling this this, this whole, whole network of yeah. uh, this whole uh, yeah of like international cannibals and putting all this stuff it's, together i mean that's basically what the case turned out to be it's so titillating which which and, and it sounds so laughable now talking about it but when the arrest first happened i don't know if you recall any of the you know the allegations were that i was actively stalking women and i was on a woman's block talking yeah. to a guy and i had gone down to maryland to, as part of a plan to stalk someone else it was like all this stuff that made it sound a lot worse than what really happened and i never blamed any of the media for reporting they were just reporting what was well, being alleged by the fbi and the yeah, prosecutors the and all that the FBI, they were, like, doing things like, they were saying things like, um, you would, you know, uh, you would kidnap three women on, like, two different continents or something on the same day. Like, you had your own, uh, uh Learjet or something that you could just fly over. Yeah, to, yeah. You were gonna... That, yeah, that didn't... Go ahead. Yeah, like, you mentioned that, uh, that information didn't come out until very close to the trial, where... You know, from the arrest up until the trial, the narrative from their perspective was this was a real conspiracy. We caught him before he did it. But as you start to read the chats, you read the details, you learn that it's preposterous that I had allegedly set up kidnapping 
a per a woman in Manhattan bringing someone else to Pakistan and kidnapping a third person all on not the same week the same day it was, I think the date was February you 20th need to be Santa Claus so, to be able to do it <laughs> yeah it, it, again it, it you know it's it really is when you really learn the facts of this case it is laughable it really is it's just unfortunate for me that I had to be the one to live it let's but, let's talk a little bit about that actually so i i mean uh sorry to bring you back to the day i mean basically the way it played out is your wife uh kathleen she was uh basically convinced by the fbi i suppose uh to uh to 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 basically uh spill the beans i guess and let let them know everything uh, everything that she found and then and then basically well no sorry she went to the police for whatever reason and then they and then that's yeah. where all hell broke loose and they monitored you for like a, about a month or so and then all of a sudden out of the blue one morning or something you you get a huge knock on your door and you you open up the door and there's like uh, you're there at gunpoint basically right and they take yeah. you off to the station yeah, that's uh, pretty much how it went down. And and, and what you mentioned uh, about them monitoring me is, is important. Um, they had placed tracking stuff on my cell phone, um, fully expecting me to lead them to this the country mountain house, house yeah. in the middle of nowhere, exactly, where uh, a big part of my fictional stories was that these acts of violence were going to take place in this mountain house that I had in the middle of nowhere, very secluded, nobody around for miles. And, you know, I'm just, so they tracked my phone thinking that I was going to leave them there. But of course that place doesn't exist because none of this was a real conspiracy. None of this stuff was ever real. I mean, what they saw was a man who went to and from work. I mean, that it must've been boring. Uh, I, I didn't have much of a social life once Kathleen left. I was just so, depressed i mean severely severely depressed um i didn't want to do anything i even spent a couple nights at the precinct just to sleep because being home was terrible oh, yeah. it was a reminder Empty of how house. things used to be where you know yeah with the baby's toys you know her play area all it it, it, it was rough to be home you know and kathleen wasn't giving me any idea of when she was coming back home because as I touched on earlier, her initial reaction was, okay, this is screwed up, but we're going to work this out. I'm not going to give up. And there are text messages, a text message exchange that I put in the book as well, where she's the one who suggests, you know, let's, let's find a couple therapists. Let's work through this. We'll be okay. Somebody out there where she's from talked her into going to the police. I don't know who it was, but she went to the police and that's when everything you know if the police had looked at everything and correctly said we understand your concern um but no you know nothing's happening here you know i mean maybe she still divorces me i don't know but the whole nightmare of being in prison for two years would have never happened and they um, and they could have done could they not have like done a sting or something like they could have like even gotten onto a chat with you or something and said yeah and like there was not that was you to to take steps because that's the whole thing the thing is that it's not it's not a crime 
uh, just thinking or talking about these things theoretically. It's a crime when you right. demonstrate that you're taking steps, like concrete steps towards action. Right? That's when it gets exactly. Wrong. Yeah. The the the, the yeah, yeah. It's called an overt act. So in, in the United States, the federal crime for conspiracy, you have to agree with somebody that you're going to do this illegal thing whether it's drugs or whether it's cannibalizing someone you have to reach a concrete agreement and then you have to take a step to further that conspiracy um and, and so the- you're right the, the, yeah so the, there was no sting operation there was no the, there was none of that they just went off of these chats on the fictional website and i mean i guess the, i mean the, I understand that my writing sounded pretty real. Yeah, it's pretty good. I totally get that. But that's that, that's the kind of joke I make now where the writing was so real that it convinced the FBI that um, this was a real conspiracy. It, I mean, it cost me everything. And, you it's, know, it's I'm, no I'm, I have a very thick skin. No, I, I, I have a thick skin and I'm able to laugh at a lot of things, but there's still those days where I'm just so angry and I'm just so upset of everything that happened um yeah the, you know you know they, 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 there was just you know nothing happened like there was no conspiracy it was so obviously just complete and it just it's so upsetting that things can be alleged and things can be said in court by prosecutors by law enforcement that are just completely untrue and i think that's a big problem in the justice system in this country is there are no ramifications for that you know my lawyer would tell me i don't know i hope i'm not getting in trouble this <laughs> or she would say you know if if, if a defense attorney if defense attorneys kind of had the reputation of being the tricky ones that you know doing anything they can to get their client off but if a defense attorney had ever lied to the extent that these people did in my case they would be brought to the bar they would be suspended they would lose their license but these people can blatantly just misrepresent fact after fact and everything is in the book it's all completely laid out clearly and anyone who wants to verify that can read the court transcripts i mean it's just but but it's like you know the attitude is okay yeah they lied we know they lied but it's it, that's business you know so you know deal with it yeah what what are some and th- that is just so what are some examples of that like uh, i mean would one be the gps information i read yeah the g yeah exactly that's the one that I come back to the most is uh you know as, as we just mentioned there has to be an agreement in a conspiracy and then an, an overt act yeah. one of the overt acts they alleged was that I was on a woman's block uh, the day after I had done a role play about her. Uh, they said, you know, this is not in the area, Your Honor. Like, this is on, he's on the, her very block. Um, I was saying to my, you know, it, like, if I was there, number one, it had to be a pure coincidence. Number, number two, I had to have a reason for being there that, you know, I didn't doubt that they had gps and that the gps was reliable but as it turned out all it was was a phone call that i made which turned out to be to my wife who was visiting a friend in the hospital 
that phone call I made pinged off of a cell phone tower in Manhattan. And that particular cell phone tower had a radius of 500 yards in either direction. So in reality, it wasn't that was on her block. Is I could have been anywhere within that 500. That's five football fields in each direction. Yeah. In Manhattan, which is a very condensed area, you know, the woman lives in Manhattan. I had to, I, I was working in Manhattan. It's perfectly explainable why my phone would ping off of a tower. That didn't mean that I was on the woman's block, as they alleged over and over and over again, until the evidence started coming in. My lawyers did outstanding research about cell towers and all that, you know, where the it was no, he was on the very block. Then it became he was within a few blocks and it became 500 yards. I mean, come on, where the, that was their key piece of evidence where and then when a the trial started, they never even introduced it. So and they and you never got bail because of because they were just spouting out all this stuff uh yeah at the beginning i was i was in custody the entire time uh i had bail hearings and these reasons like the gps evidence they claim they had uh the trip to maryland where I, as you mentioned i'm a university of maryland graduate i have a lot of friends in maryland i went down to visit with a bunch of friends with my wife and daughter. I'd go to Maryland three or four times a year. Um, they alleged that I was going down one trip during the summer to stalk a woman who I had a role play about. I'd known this woman for 10, 15 years. Nothing unusual about going down there. But so the judge who heard, you know, these facts or these allegations and the bail hearing, I remember the judge saying, you know, it, it's one thing for it to be on the computer, but here we have not only that, we have he's on the woman's block. He went down to Maryland, and that looked really bad. Now, I'm furious sitting there because I know exactly what's going on and how it can be explained, but at that point, that you know, it, it's, it's not a trial yet. You know, they, they kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the people who are prosecuting the case. Yeah. So it was those reasons why I was denied bail, why I was in solitary confinement for seven months. Uh, they, you know, the prison was afraid of me being a police officer. They couldn't have me in general population because it was a safety issue. So I was in solitary confinement for, for seven, you know, four months up to the trial. Then I was convicted by the jury three more months after that before I just couldn't take it anymore. But So if you regularly go down to Maryland... And you're seeing someone who you either did or, or currently have a crush on. It, it kind of makes sense to me that that you would have these role plays for whatever you think of the role plays, right? Like whether you think that's like appropriate or not appropriate. It, it the, the timing for me, it's not. I don't see it as being necessary that the that the that the trip down there depends on the role play. I think it can also be that the role play it just happens to coincide with what's going on in your life right now. And that's all it was and that's a big argument my lawyer Julia, my lawyer right. and I, I think it did help that 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 she that she's a female. I had a female, an attractive female representing me and vig from the first day just vigorously defending me she, she got it from day one um so i you know i knew i was going to be okay with her and then just the way she fought in court she just understood everything she even mentioned dnd &D, you know Dun dungeons and dragons like you would point it's, it's almost like you were in the courtroom sean and you listened to her because you, you were a 
hitting some things that she touched on, but that's what, you know, the role plays, what one thing she mentioned where you know, like, you know, Gil went down to Maryland to see a friend. So he, she was on his mind, you know, so that, so that coincided with the role play he was doing because she, she was kind of like fresh on Gil's mind. You, you, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? It's, 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 it's pretty, a degree of plausibility, yeah. right? I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to do anything necessarily. So you no and go ahead you know and, and it, the, the, these bail hearings when you know the trip to maryland was a big deal to everybody to the prosecutors to the media you know it, it, they always left out that i brought my wife and daughter and that i had seen about six people that weekend you know i, I didn't just see the the woman i'd spent i got brunch with the woman I, I spent 30 minutes with her yeah um i was in maryland for three days you know the whole weekend wasn't with her the whole you know I, we did different things uh, you know we were all over maryland that weekend um it was just all those things kind of get left out and a bail hearing when a trial starts it got to the point where there were people in the media one per a couple people said to my to, to julia my lawyer it's like every witness the government calls up is actually helping the defense because these women who i had these role plays about they were called to testify and they painted me to be a nice guy. I never had any problems with me. I was never any threatening. I never harassed nothing. It's just, I was a gentleman. I was a nice guy. Um, no one with the exception of my ex-wife had anything bad to say about me, which was just another unusual part of a very unusual case where the government's witnesses actually painted me in a positive light. Yeah. And I mean, um, a lot of these, um, these cases that I see on the news, it's always, you know, the lone wolf or you've got this sort of social outcast who is yep. creepy, he's got no friends. And and based on what I've read, you, you know, you were fairly sociable. You, you had friends. You were able to actually have some kind of social life, even though you had the worst sure. possible um uh, hour working hours for that. I worked at a call center during those hours. That shift, and it's horrible for any kind of social life. But you, you, you had all that kind of stuff going on. So it's not that you were some kind of freaky Jeffrey Dahmer kind of like weirdo who just uh, you know lived in your yeah, apartment. I wasn't and never it, talked to anybody. Exactly. I was. I was, and I, and I still am. I'm the furthest thing from a loner. Um. I have a very large social circle, love to go out, had a social life, you know, it, it, it's never, it's just, it just didn't fit. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like you said, it, you know, you can connect certain dots where a crime happens and you look at the person's past and like you said, he, maybe uh, the person liked to kill animals, torture animals, maybe he had no friends, you know, he wrote he was threatening the people just uh, that was none of that you know no I, I never had a bad thing to say about anybody i really never had other than my job as a police officer i never really had a fight with anybody in my life i was just very relaxed very chill very go with the flow had a lot of friends you know good student good police officer just all of that with these fantasies it's just, um, you know, which never crossed into the real world. So, 
So basically, let, let's let's go back a bit here. So so they they come in, they arrest you, they bring you you, you bring you to jail basically, and then you end up in prison, and they you, they stick you into solitary confinement. And this was before you even managed to get a trial. Um, yeah. And that you were in solitary not because you're some kind of like uh, you know Silence of the Lamb. Uh, uh, yeah. Hannibal Lecter or anything. You were just you were there because they were concerned about um, you being a cop and being in with the general population, right? Exactly. It was a measure for my safety to keep me in solitary confinement. Yeah. But that being said, the, the solitary confinement unit in that prison is for people who had this uh, disciplinary problems. So they would have certain privileges taken away where they were only allowed one phone call a month while for the period they were in solitary confinement. Jeez. Where general population, yeah, general population, you get 300 minutes a month that you can call whoever you want. Now, even though I was there for my safety, I had not done anything to break any rules. I had not been there for discipline. I was still subject to those same rules. So I was only allowed... This is by the time my paperwork finally went. I mean, it was months before I even got to call my parents, my family. Never mind visitation. And that was... Never mind me being in solitary confinement, but I had no way to talk to my parents, to my brother, to anyone on the outside. My pipeline was uh, Julia and her paralegal. They were the ones who told me what was going on and the day after i was arrested they told me you know your parents don't believe any of this for a second they you know they don't care they, they don't care what's being said in court they don't believe a second of what they're hearing so that helped but i want you know i couldn't talk to them myself and hear that myself and that's rough yeah for, you know yeah so it, here i am it was i i knew it was a huge case because every time i went to court the place was packed so i knew especially in New York city. I knew it was being covered by basically every paper in the city. And they were, you know, the tabloids making jokes and, and everything. I was relatively shielded from that in prison, in solitary confinement. I didn't have access to newspapers and any of that stuff, but my pa I worried sick about my family being on the outside and having to deal with friends and neighbors and coworkers. And I just, I, I, you know, I never got the full story of how they were able to handle that. And I think that's just something that my family and I have kind of agreed not to talk about. Or I never told my family how hard it was inside. And they never kind of, they never told me how tough it was for them on the outside. Where what was being reported early on in the case was just horrifying. And I, I just can't imagine how tough it was for them to to deal with the funny looks from people, you know, going to work and my, my, my brother going to work and getting funny looks from his coworkers, knowing that, you know, his brother is on the front page of every newspaper in town. Uh, it, uh, yeah. It's something that really, it, it, it hurts to think about. And I mean, they are some of the strongest who, people, my family, my God. Who, who the hell wants their, how, wants their like, deepest darkest sexual urges or or whatever to be put on display not only to the to the world at large but mostly to your parents you know that's oh my worst, god right I, I think i would rather have complete strangers know what my personal fetishes are or what have you than than my mom i was and dad. I, 
when I was having my uh, meetings with my legal team, I was trying to campaign to tell them, please do not let my parents come to this trial. I mean, it was kind of like laughing about it. Yeah. But I didn't, like you said, like it's one thing for strangers or reporters to see all this. And let me tell you, the courtroom was enormous. They had projectors and every goddamn chat I had in my life was showing these projectors. And oh my, oh, that was a tough part. I mean, the just the epitome of embarrassment. There couldn't be anything more embarrassing for me. Yeah. For, you know, for, for a person to go through and having your parents sit in the front row. And have to watch and listen to all that stuff. Um, so, so basically, uh, after this sort of flimsy, what appeared to be a flimsy prosecution, and everybody was kind of convinced that there's no way um, a, a jury could convict you of thought crimes. Yeah. Like basically, how you, you didn't you didn't murder anybody, you didn't kidnap anybody, you didn't you know you didn't do anything you didn't you didn't buy like you know i don't know cyanide or what have you chloroform off the internet or anything you didn't do anything like that no ropes nothing right so right so that's right after all of that uh the uh the jury comes along and and declares that you're uh find you guilty guilty and and you're possibly facing life in prison yeah 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 life life in prison Jeez. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, uh, we felt good. Um, the case, the trial played out like we thought it would. And, um, it was going so well that we decided that I w- was not going to testify, uh, because we just felt the government did not come close to meeting their case. Wow. And the jury had ar- the jury had already gone through the chats, right? That was three days of just every chat was read and everything was poured over. And that was a disturbing part of the trial. Now, it went both ways, where the prosecutors pointed out certain part of the chats. We pointed out certain part of the chats that clearly showed this was not a real plan. But it was still disturbing to read and yeah. to listen to. So we figured, why put the jury through that again? Because if I was going to testify, the prosecutors were going to have me read in my own voice the things that I wrote and things that I said. Jeez. and. Yeah. We just didn't think that oh, that was the right way to go. We thought the government didn't meet their case. So uh, it turns out the jury comes back guilty. Everybody's shocked. I was uh, Apparently there was a big gasp in the courtroom. I didn't hear it just because I was so crushed and devastated. Um, you know, my mind starts going right away to life in prison, life in prison. Um, you know, I, when I got back, oh, geez, after the... Uh, after the jury left, the judge said something interesting. The judge looked at kind of my lawyer, looked at me, and before he left the bench, he said, I must say I've never seen a defendant get a more vigorous defense than what Mr. Valley got. It was just something that he didn't have to say, but he said. I just, you know, then I'm led back to the court i turn and look at my parents my mother mouths to me stay strong you know just stay strong and when i got back to the prison i, I broke down hysterically absolutely hysterically and, and and by then word was starting to get around some of the guards in the prison were had heard what happened and they were beyond shock too it just seemed like 
you know, the newspapers were all kind of in my corner at that point. Everyone was reporting that this case was just, it was not a case. This was not anything. There was not a crime. Disturbing, yes. And let me be clear here. I have no problem with people thinking that I'm a piece of garbage for my behavior, for the things that I wrote, for my fantasies. I have no problem with people not wanting anything to do with me. That's fine. The question is, did I belong in prison for the rest of my life? And anyone who looks at this case... No matter what you think of me, the answer has to be no, because that would set such a dangerous, dangerous precedent where I don't like what you fantasize about. I don't like what you write online. Boom, you're going to jail. That just can't happen. It can't in a free functioning society. That can't happen. No matter, you know, I can be the biggest piece of garbage in the world. And believe me, people have told me on social media, you know, drop dead and this and that and. That's fine. I want people to tell me to drop dead because if I was in prison, they would have to go to prison for that too. You know what I mean? It's like, it's kind of ironic. Yeah. Um, but my lawyers kind of calmed me down the next day after the verdict where they had a plan of attack already. We were going to, we had a lot to attack. There was no evidence. The government's closing argument, that's a whole other legal issue. It was just so improper where they made arguments they weren't supposed to make. And um, that's all in the book. But my lawyers were just tremendous. They kept my head in the right place. Eventually, I'd gone to general population because I couldn't take solitary confinement anymore. Right. The inmates, to my surprise were completely behind me. I mean, I had never gotten more support in my life, not from cops, not from yeah, yeah. those inmates kept me, which was amazing as, as someone who was a police officer, those men did not see me as a cop. They saw me as somebody who was wrongfully prosecuted, yeah. wrongfully convicted. So they saw me as somebody who didn't belong there. And, and I mean, and they, the, um, and and even the union, what is it? The 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 L A the uh, not the L A the uh, N Y P E yeah, policeman's union or whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah, the patrolman's uh, benevolent ben- benevolent association. The PBA is called. They they didn't really do anything, not only for you, but uh, not not for your for your parents either, your family. They didn't. No, not an, not a thing. And again, like I understand. The situation with me i mean that i paid my dues i was a member they were supposed to at least send me a lawyer they, 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 they didn't even do that but nothing from my you know my family was just left completely in the dark and my father had actually when he found out he heard that i was arrested on the news and he had gone to the precinct where i worked just he didn't know where else to go and nobody there in fact they they threw him out you know he uh they didn't want him there Wow. They threw him, and when I when I found that out, this was after I had been exonerated. I, my father finally told me that for me burned a lot of bridges. From this, you know, this says a lot. All, 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 go ahead. Just yeah, let me just tell this real quick. All I had heard when I got out of prison were people saying, uh, you know, we never believed it from the guys I used to work, guys and girls I used to work with, people who you know I grew up with. We never, we never thought any of this. We never thought it was true. We knew you were innocent. This was, we knew this was a BS case from day one. Well, I never heard an ounce of that when I was in prison. I mean, people could have written to me. I'd gotten straight, written letters from all over the world. I got letters from Iceland. From, from, I mean, 
there are people who believed in my case, who believed that I didn't belong there, who took the time to write to me. I had a bundles and bundles of letters and I couldn't get one letter of support from anyone I used to work with, anyone I grew up with. Then all of a sudden I'm out and everybody was in my corner from day one. But you know what makes me angry the most is my, f if, they, if that was a case, why would you leave my mother alone in the dark? Why would you throw my father out of the precinct? It's just, it's just a lot of crap that people tell me that just not being genuine you know and the, the one thing that uh i mean uh, just to clarify i guess because um unsurprisingly i guess uh uh based on the the, the uh parts of the chats that i actually read uh mostly from the there was this hbo special we'll get into real quick uh and there was another uh there was another thing on as well true crime daily i think it was called or something um so personally i mean i find uh uh the the chats to be uh shocking disturbing i mean not at all uh arousing or titillating in any way um, yeah. And kind of repulsive. Uh, that well, kind of quite repulsive. That said, yeah. what repulses me is that was that treatment by uh, the union and the and the treatment by the uh, the jury, because you know what? It's what Voltaire said. Really, he I think it's Voltaire. He said that um, you know uh, I I will die to defend your right to say. I'm butchering this, but I, I will die to say I will die to defend your right to say what, whatever you want, uh, to not even to say to sure. think. I mean, the thing is that if you're, um, it, my I guess my criteria is that um, uh, y who cares if you went on to her block? Who cares if you know? That's fine. Uh, uh, I mean, it's another thing if you opened her door or went through her window or something. Then you're crossing the line, right? But like, if you're, I mean, if you're not breaking any laws, then there should be no charges. And if you're, and and absolutely, and if you, you know, if you're, a, if you're a terrorist or something, and you have ideations about doing terrible things, I mean, unless you go out and start buying some sulfites or whatever, some fertilizer to make a bomb or something, go wild, man. Whatever makes you happy. Yeah. There have to be real world acts to go along with the thoughts, right? Yeah, how many exactly. times has somebody said it? How many times has somebody been cut off? right on the highway i wish that guy would fucking die yeah i oh, wish yeah. he i wish he crashed his car how many times have some, someone's boss pissed him off and said oh, i wish this motherfucker would drop dead you know but you don't really mean that and you, and you know you wish it for a second but you don't go down the block and get a hammer to bludgeon the guy to death you know what i mean it's just something you you think of it it crosses your mind for a second but it has to be a real world act to go with it before it's illegal and, and i just why i, I want to stress you know because like i fully support the conspiracy laws like they're great laws because you want to stop the violent thing from happening which is there, there has to be a real conspiracy before you infringe on somebody's first amendment rights and before you ruin somebody's life because i'm never going to get my life back you know even though i've been exonerated i've been completely cleared the ruling in my favor from both the trial judge and the court of appeals were just overwhelmingly in my favor. 
uh, where they just lambasted the prosecution for bringing this case and that's all great and I have my freedom back but I'm never gonna have my life back what I used to have um, you know as long as I'm gonna be Gill Valley this the cannibal cop stigma is just never gonna leave um, and that's something I have to accept and deal with and it's just part of my life now and I and it this you know i've learned to just 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 for the sake of moving on it helps to just accept that that's how it is you know where i have a great support system my family as i mentioned before people who have found me on social media and just tell me to keep my head up you know like all of that helps all of that really helps now i get some from the other side too where they don't agree that i should you know they think i should be in prison for the rest of my life and that's fine for me you know People can express their opinions however they want. It's, it's just, it's tough. It's just, it really is, you know? It's tough too, because, uh, I mean, you're, you still, okay, so right now, just to catch up, uh, and we won't go deep into this, you can read the book, actually. Um, they, I mean, the you're exonerated like it's like a, a miracle we won't go into why but it almost this thing almost never happens what what occurred the, the judge basically um throughout dissolved the case uh, we won't go into the exact terms so you're free there you had another um charge against you because at one point you accessed a police computer i think or that was the claim and that finally yeah. went through too like that was uh cleared basically. yeah that was a whole that was a whole other fiasco and that was a whole other thing that scared people where they were saying that i had used the work computer to look up that is women's scary. addresses yeah. and, and, and no it's for sure and that i had stored a hundred women's addresses it was the truth was it was one person it was a girl i knew since high school who had asked me to look up an accident report number she had gotten into a car accident and instead of her going to the precinct or calling the precinct herself she called no, me and said hey are, okay. are, are, are you able are, are yeah are you able to you know to look up uh, the report number for me so i said sure i was in a patrol car i typed her name in which i wasn't supposed to do that is against work policy that's against nypd policy but that's not a federal crime what i did i mean i at most i would lose a vacation day or two right uh for doing a favor for somebody like that but it, there was no i i already so knew where she lived then. i knew i yeah it was unrelated completely unrelated uh but they charged me with accessing that you know accessing that information that they argued that i didn't have access to but i did because i had a login a password and that's a whole that computer law is very convoluted and there's a lot of debate on exactly who's covered and what exactly is a crime but long story short there wasn't a hundred women it was one person who had asked me to look into something for her i already knew where she lived i i i knew everything basically everything about her she was a dear friend of mine for years and years and you know uh, that got thrown out too by the court of appeals so so now i have you're... nothing at all you have nothing at all like you, you got nothing on you you're basically a free man now and now you're going 
uh, last I heard, you were suing the government for the the, the shoddy uh, pr- prosecution job that they did. Yeah. Yeah, I have two lawsuits uh, that are still pending after all this time. Uh, I have one lawsuit against the federal government, one against uh, the city of New York for wrongful termination because I should not have lost my job. Now, can I be a police officer again? Let's be realistic. Probably not. Not in this city anyway, where, you know, news, you know, reporters have the police scanners and what somebody's going to call 911 and have the cannibal cops show up to their doors is that just cannot, it just can't happen. I, I understand it, but that doesn't mean that they were right in firing me. Uh, I was fired when I was convicted and that conviction was subsequently overturned. Right. And as you mentioned, the, 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 the step the judge took is something that never, ever happens. The judge, we thought, would give me a new trial. We were very optimistic at that, that we were going to get a new trial, have to go through it again. But for him to take the extra step and dismiss the case altogether, that is my greatest argument. Anyone who's not familiar with the case who thinks, oh, you know, he might have done it, he might not have done it. For the judge to take the step that he did, that is my greatest piece of ammunition for me to convince anyone and then if they take the time to read that order 100 pages and just the shots he takes at the prosecutions and you know bing 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 why this was not even close to a conspiracy or any real crime whatsoever um you know that's a good thing for me to have for me to circle back to and and i mean so basically you've got that and you've also got like the the most probably the most gut-wrenching situation is your daughter who was i think you said uh, i read that you, she was around 11 months old or something like that when she was uh when uh, yeah your wife left and you, you haven't seen her at all since then right no no contact have, whatsoever my daughter's now seven years old and she has no idea who i am i've never seen her and that is the worst part of all this or that poor little girl is forced to grow up without her father. Um, my mother is forced to go on and not be a grandmother to her. Um, I had brought a case to gain visitation. Right. Uh, it just recently was uh, terminated. I decided to drop the case. It just, mm. the judge out there, it was absolutely abundantly clear that he was not going to give me a fair chance he made absolutely baffling just jaw-dropping rulings against me uh kathleen's mother is a retired family court judge in that area kathleen's lawyer clerked for this judge it was just the deck was completely stacked against me and wow i fought damn hard for two and a half years and i spent a hell of a lot of money I had a forensic evaluation done. I mean, this is thousands and thousands of thousands of dollars just for the doctors alone. So you're going you know, to have to wait. For him to deem. I mean, you're going to have to I wait. I either until have she's to wait, yeah. Until she's 18, right? Before, and then hope she until finds she, you. Yeah. Or uh, either until she's 18, or uh, my lawyer and I spoke about that kids are very savvy these days on the computer. It might be, you know, she might 
find me on social media. I mean, uh, I just have to hope that's the case. I have everything from the case saved yeah. for her to show her how much I, my lawyer did an outstanding job out there. I mean, it was hard to find somebody to take the case, you know, <laughs> right. But, uh, he right. took it. He, he was very, he was very honest with me from the start he thought initially upon talking to me that and knowing you know just basic elements about the case you know he thought the odds were against me to gain visitation but he took the case anyway and i appreciated that and i appreciated him being so honest and over time over a couple of months i mean he the pendulum just swung completely where he was completely in my i mean i got such a great effort from that man and the uh the doctor that we hired to do an evaluation of me came back completely clean that i'm not a violent person and it's just really it's just a gut-wrenching shame that i wasn't gonna get a fair chance to even have my day in court it got to the point where the judge ordered me to pay for my ex's attorney's fees um, because we brought there was supposed to be an, uh, a custody doctor who was supposed to interview me, interview Kathleen, interview our daughter and look at all the relevant documents about the case. The uh, Kathleen's lawyer wrote a letter to that doctor and basically argued her entire case as to why I shouldn't be allowed to reunite with my daughter. And that wasn't supposed to happen. It was supposed to be a neutral doctor who was going to make up his own mind. He, we weren't supposed to make any arguments. We brought that to the judge's attention and the judge said, no, she didn't do anything wrong. And as punishment for bringing this up, you have to pay for her attorney. See, and that was just the final... You know, never mind Kathleen's mother, retired court judge, never mind the lawyer clerking for the judge. That was already hard enough. It was already enough of an uphill case, but for that judge to make that ruling. That was it. It's just, uh, yeah. That was it. I, 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 you know, I couldn't keep going on. It was stressing me out, it was draining me financially. I couldn't just keep throwing money away for a case that I couldn't possibly win it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed it was over two and a half years of fighting uh but i have everything saved for you know my daughter's gonna want to know who her father is i mean that's just the bottom line and yeah we'll you see know what happens. kathleen's gonna have a yeah she i mean there's gonna be a lot of explaining to do from that fan you know that side of the family as to why anyway yeah so you know, that's uh let, let, let's just jump right back because i mean i the first place i saw you actually uh like uh, on on t was on tv and it was by this it was this documentary on hbo and it was yeah. uh i think it was uh done by um aaron carr was the producer of the of this documentary and yeah I mean that it it was uh, stylistically speaking it was it was very much in line with a lot of these true crime uh, documentaries a lot of you know scary music and uh you know uh sure uh, you know fantastical stuff and experts and, and etc um and I actually heard another 
I heard another interview that you did where you mentioned that um, it, the documentary didn't really go the way you wanted it to. And uh, so maybe, I guess, if yeah. our listeners here, I might want to urge them to like uh, take it with a little grain of salt, uh, the HBO documentary. Could you get into a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. It wasn't how I wanted it to go. It, it wasn't what I was told it was going to be. Right. Um, now we, uh, she had initially contacted me when I was in prison. When the case, you know, we had our paperwork was in. We were waiting for the judge to make a ruling on the whether or not I was getting a new trial. Uh, it was before he, you know, the bombshell ruling where he released me from prison. Uh, we had been talking, and she, you know. Uh, she visited me in prison as well. She came with my family and visited. And I just completely trusted her. She told me she believed in my exam. I mean, she was just checking all the boxes. You know, everything that I wanted to hear, she was saying. Where she believed in my innocence. She believed I didn't belong there. She wanted to do a documentary that was completely in my favor. And that, that showed what a travesty this case was. And how dangerous this case was for... American citizens and um, she gained my lawyer's trust now uh, I, I was all in I, I was all in on this I like listen let's do this documentary you know maybe somebody important will watch it and see just what the government did here all the lies all the crap they pulled and you know my lawyers trusted her but they weren't waving the pom-poms for doing a documentary they the case was still pending they thought it could be a little dangerous Hmm. then the ruling came i was released from prison and uh we still wanted to do the documentary because i figured all right you know the government was appealing the judge's ruling so there was still a chance i can go back to prison if the court of appeals overturned the trial judge i can go back to prison but i also was thinking about lawsuits and everything and i just i just wanted the full story out there for the first time because you know, the tabloid coverage in the city at one point was very one-sided. I just feel like the truth wasn't out there. And Erin was telling me, like, she was going to help me get the truth out there. And the documentary came out, and it was just not at close to, never mind what I wanted, it wasn't close to accurate either, where she made the documentary very much down the middle, where, and these were her own words after the thing premiered, where, she was telling people and in interviews and presentations and everything she wanted half the people in the theater to walk out and say i think gil would have done it and i wanted the other half to say i don't think he would have done it she now to make why a good would show, i right like she wanted to sure, make this, yeah she, she was all all about her show her movie basically by the sound no, absolutely it. and you know if she had said any of that to me from the beginning if that's what she wanted to do i would have said thanks but no thanks you know why would somebody in my position with the case still pending why on earth would i want out there a documentary that a lot of people are going to watch why would i want something that's going to be down the middle 50 50 where she had to, to make it 50 50 she had to elevate certain parts of their case take certain things from my case away it just it, that did not make it close to an accurate portrayal and I mean, my family was devastated. I was crushed. It was just such a betrayal of trust. My lawyers even were, you know, were, one lawyer was a little more with the, you know, I told you this could have happened with Julia 
was a lot softer where she said listen like i trusted her too like there was just something about her she seemed to be legitimately in our corner and then for her to do what she did i mean it's just really really pissed me off but on the other hand it did push me to write the book exactly and and just from the hbo special one thing that i noticed and it's interesting because i actually was uh my wife and i we were going out at the time so we weren't married and we had a camera crew wanting to put us into a uh a docu their own documentary mini series about alternative lifestyles and um they actually um I mean, I, I guess what people don't really get is that these crews often embed themselves into your day. Like they get there at seven sure. o'clock in the morning and they're there until eight o'clock at night, day after day. Yeah, just not, taking... I, I, I think the final count was uh, they were there 13 days, like you said, from the crack of dawn to yeah, exactly. almost the end of the night. And, and with that, they can know, craft anything. Of... They can craft any kind of story with that. And like... And what, and, and I mean, so what brings me back is that you, they had one part of the movie or the documentary where they were saying like, they were, they were reading one of your chats and it was something like, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to take her. The bacon, her, right? Yeah. Her yeah. belly and I want to turn it into <laughs> bacon. And then, and then they cut to you frying up some bacon. It was like a scene straight out of, uh, you know, Silence of the Lambs or something, you know, like, yeah. And then they're like, and then they have, uh, they were talking about, they, they'd always be showing you like making pasta, you know, a little tube pasta with uh, red sauce and, and meat or you yeah. like making like, a, I don't know what it was, like a lasagna or something like that with like all stirring, like a stirring the pot with the, with the, the spoon yeah. and everything. And, and it was just like, uh, what's the deal with that? I mean, they could have. Yeah, no, nah, you know, I, I, I thought that my family we all thought that she was above that gimmicky crap you know yeah or i'm just being a nice guy and since they're there all day i decided to cook for them well of you know course what i mean and fully realizing that time yeah and fully realizing on. that you know like the jokes write themselves here i am the cannibal cop cooking food right but i really thought that they were above such stupid immature crap like that when they were presented to me an idea for a serious thought-provoking documentary that was going to show why this case was a sham why i should never have been arrested and it was just such a far cry from it would have been so, so what much, actually happened yeah it would have been so much more challenging if they had of uh you know uh taken that other approach in my opinion it would have been actually a little more thought-provoking a little less uh sensationalist so uh, I guess, well, I'm going to start wrapping some things up because we're already past the hour mark here. Um, your view of the criminal justice system in the United States has probably been like pretty switched around because like you started out as a cop, so you were on the one side, right? And your job was to yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily Absolutely. your job, but I mean, you 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 had to get the bad guys, right? So your job was to find the bad guys and get the bad guys, and now all of a sudden you find yourself on the other end of that, and you realize that maybe things aren't as black and white as you maybe thought they were, right? I mean, you could not have 
been more exact with the transformation in my own mind after what I went through being a police officer where I think as somebody who did his job honestly I was a good cop I was well respected by my peers by the community by my bosses I'd pass a sergeant's exam I was going to be promoted here's a guy who makes valid arrests who works with good prosecutors who thinks that we're doing the good things and that there's nobody that does anything wrong in that side of the law right it's it's the fence attorneys like they're the criminals they're the ones trying to get these bad guys out in the street then i turn into a defendant myself and i see the lying that's going on by the other side and it's just from what i went through every case that i come across now i mean i look through it I look at it through a lens from the defense side completely where I'm looking for, all right, where's, you know, where's the lie? Like, where's the shadiness happening from the, you know, and I just look at a case now so heavily from the defense perspective after seven years as a police officer about to be promoted to sergeant. It's just such an interesting transformation. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm not naive, uh, you know, every prosecutor isn't bad, every defense attorney isn't good, but just the initial thought when I look at a case, I'm just, I'm, I'm at the defense table looking at it and all right, is this on the level, you know, where in my seven years as a cop, it would be all right, they arrested him, he's guilty, open and shut, move on, you know convict them move on another, that's it another sunny safe day in america <laughs> yeah so um you so you released this book and then the book that you released after that was called a gathering of evil and that is some fiction because you're no longer yeah. gill the cannibal cop you're now gill the cannibal horror author and you write exactly hardcore um uh horror books that's not for yeah. the faint of heart and so really what you've done is it's too bad you didn't skip directly to this rather than uh do the yeah thing exactly because, uh to be honest it's amazing how you can write the same kind of stuff put it in a book and you you get you get it that's perfectly fine or put it in a movie like the saw or something like that and that's perfectly fine sure but then you put it on 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 uh you know on online and 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 i don't want to i don't want to you know uh i don't want to take away from the fact that it is scary it was scary for kathleen and everybody else that you were you know modeling real people with real pictures but i mean when authors absolutely when, when authors write books they're also t drawing from real life there too you know so i mean the thing sure, is that uh, absolutely you you so your next book after the uh the first one there is called a gathering of evil and then you just recently uh have another book called a catalog what is it catalog it's of a prey. social catalog of prey yeah, yeah and that's available yeah, so pre-order yeah on amazon uh you can just find me on twitter uh at gill valley three that's g-i-l-v-a-l-l-e three and all the my amazon page is uh on there and it, you know i just uh raw deal the memoir i enjoyed writing the book so much that i decided to give uh and this is part of what i said earlier where i kind of have to 
accept yeah. the stigma that's with me. So while I have that, let me see if I can use it to my advantage in any way. And so I kind of make lemonade out of lemons, right? So I took a crack at a fictional book and I mean, the press it got just, I mean, it's in New York, everything I do, it just, it, you know, people want to know. It, it just, it, it ends up in, in the papers. I had made a, a dating profile on match.com. you thinking, yeah. like, listen, like, yeah, things have been pretty quiet. Maybe I can, let, let's see, like, maybe I can start dating again. Maybe, I, you know, the case is over and all that stuff. And I mean, it wasn't even a day before the New York Post was at my door at my house. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that turned into that. So, you know, it's a curse and a blessing in the same way. It's like did, curse, you know, I, people were like making any, jokes probably too about that. That sure. thing. they're probably like, you know, was he? Does he like fast food, but maybe not too fast, right? Because he well, he has to be able to catch exactly, it, right? yeah. No, believe me, the the, the it's been since 2012 since it's, the, the jokes write themselves, man. Believe me, yeah. like they, it's uh, you know, like I'm blessed for the most part with the ability to have a very thick skin and handle it and just kind of laugh a lot of it off. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how many people would be able to handle seven months of solitary confinement and just everything that just your life being uprooted. And I've been, there's bad days of course, but for the most part, things are going okay. I'm working a regular nine to five job also. Uh, so I've gotten back, on my feet in that regard and really it's the support system it's my family it's the friends who have stuck by me you know you really get to know who your true friends are after going through something like this and you know with all the recognition with the publicity you know no writer no artist no musician would ever turn down publicity for their work so you know, it's just something I had to live with where I write a book and, it, you know, it's all over the place, So, which helps. It helps me, you know, with book sales and all that stuff. But at the same time, it's also just thrown in my face again that I can never have a normal life. It's just everyone wants to know what I'm up to. Um, yeah. So, yeah, for, for, for the time being, uh, the, the, the writing is kind of a side thing. Uh, I have a nice little fan club. Uh, I got a... You know, people interested, and you know, as you mentioned, these books are not for everybody. They're they're extreme horror stories. They're not for the faint of heart. I would love for everybody to read Raw Deal. Uh, that's the book about what happened with the criminal case. But I don't want everybody to read my fictional books because uh, that's written for a certain subculture, and they are strikingly similar. There are elements from kind of you know these things like the, the, these stories kind of have a dark web element to them, so it's kind of taking pieces as you said like authors sometimes are inspired by real events so this kind of my stories kind of are pulled from what happened to me where these people are plotting sadistic things on a dark web and they go in and, and they do it in the real world and it's just they, they, and i guess the thing i'm most proud of with these stories is people talk about how realistic they are and it's just something different and it's just uh even people who leave bad reviews who say it was just too real too graphic like that's as someone who writes extreme horror that's kind of what i want to hear it was so bad that you couldn't get so graphic and so real that you couldn't get through it yourself you know that uh, that's kind of like a notch in my belt if i see something like that 
Absolutely. Uh, so, listen, Gil, uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I mean, and uh, best of luck with the books, and uh, I'll be putting up links to the, your books and your website on the show notes. Thanks so much for joining me from your car. Sure, I appreciate it. Now, we kind of covered a lot in a little bit of time. I mean, this uh, we could do a whole week about this case, believe me, but I appreciate the time. I appreciate your patience and let me kind of get through all the things I wanted to say, and, um, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Sean. Well, that's about it for this episode. I'd really like to thank Gil for being on the show. I'd like to encourage you to visit his website over at gilvalley.com. That's G-I-L-V-A-L-L-E. Uh, of course, always visit shareaslicepodcast.com. Uh, there you can find all the show notes, all the links, and you subs- you can subscribe to all my social media there. Please do follow the Twitter, uh, follow Instagram, where I will occasionally post uh, short video clips. And also, um, if you could, please um, leave a review here and there on uh, in, on iTunes, here or there. Leave, do leave a review on iTunes. It would be most, most appreciated. Um, I'm just going to leave off this episode with a hilarious and awesome preview of um, Sister Indiga's new, I guess it's a radio serial. It's a podcast serial. It's a radio play on a podcast, and it's called Blazed of Our Lives, A Deadly Christmas. That's actually what is coming up for Christmas actually let's let me actually uh, correct that uh, what I'm gonna play for you here is a preview to that which um, sister Indica had put out on her joy bomb podcast and so you go to joybomb.podomatic.com or just find the podcast on your iTunes subscribe it's not only for people who are into drag uh, I find it really, really witty and funny. So, and this preview, by the way, I find it to be absolutely hilarious and well done. Um, I mean, yeah. So go check it out. And we're going to end off this episode with Blazed All Our Lives, A Deadly Christmas, which is a preview of a radio play coming December 2018. Again, thanks so much for listening, and hope you'll be back next time. Joy Bomb with Sister Indica presents... Blazed All Our Lives, A Deadly Christmas. Written, produced, directed by, and starring Sister Indica. Also starring Rosie Bush, Joanne Michaels, 
Pandora d'Estranger, featuring Father Grizzly Adams as Seymour Bush, Sarah Bigot as Lily Banks, Yo-Yo Blackfire as Biff Barrington, Dixon Dumay as Giovanni Valducci, Chris Ashton as Doc. To Victor Banks, Pterodactyl as Dr. Rocky Hernandez, Big Mel as Vivian Vandelay, Sister Christian Diora as Tiffany Fontaine, Katie Christian Starr as Bianca Wolf, Tanita Asada as Bruno Costa, Freddie Ralda as Lorenzo Vera, and narrated by yours truly. Sister Bang Bang. Welcome to Misty River an affluent Midwestern American mountain town filled with secrets and scandal. Our story begins just days before Christmas at the funeral of Giovanni, local heartthrob and son of Mafia boss Vincenzo Valducci. His was a sudden, tragic death, a bludgeoning with a fireplace poker, if you can imagine, and his family, friends, and even foes have gathered at St. Nora's Church to celebrate his life. Excuse me, dear. Oh, Sister Indica, I didn't see you standing there. This funeral wreath is beautiful, but it's nearly as big as I am. Oh, Mrs. Banks, it's no trouble. I always love running into you. I just wish it was under different circumstances. You and Giovanni were so close, almost like brother and sister. I am just so devastated for your loss, dear. I know you're busy running your media empire, but if you ever want to stop by for some tea and conversation, you know where to find me. I do know where to find you. If you're not at a hospital board meeting or planning events for the ladies' auxiliary, you are in your happiest place of all as headmistress of St. Nora's Orphanage. Careful, dear. Sounds like you're reading my obituary. Don't even joke about that. You know you're like a second mother to me. Well, your second mother is wondering where your new love interest is. What kind of man leaves his special girl all by herself and dressed to the nines in black mink, no less, with matching turban? You little diva. Mrs. Banks, you know Seymour is president and CEO of Bush Enterprises. He's a powerful and busy man. Plus, I'm not alone. I'm with Pandora. She just went to get us a couple drinks. Oh, thank heavens. She's a good egg. Just a very odd egg. I'm glad she's here for you. Well, I'd better put this wreath with the others. I'll see you soon, love. Very soon. And my annual Christmas soiree this week? You and your orphans are my guests of honor. Oh, that's right. I just assume that with, you know, well, no one would blame you for canceling, dear. The best thing for me to do is keep living my life, Mrs. Banks. That's what Giovanni would have wanted. The ladies kissed each other goodbye as Pandora Destrange, Sister Indica's best friend and owner of the town's only metaphysical bookstore, approached with two glasses of soda. Don't worry, bitch. I have my flask with me. This has vodka in it. Oh, thank God. Pandora, you are a lifesaver. 
girl, I know you. There's only three things that can get you through a crisis. A stiff drink, a blunt, and a hard dick. And I can help you with two of those. <laughs> <laughs> Their laughter subsided as they spotted Rosie Bush and Joanne Michaels entering the reception. Rosie was the red-haired, bitter ex-wife of Sister Indica's new beau, Seymour. Joanne was Rosie's mousy assistant and, for lack of a better word, minion. The way she followed after Rosie and did her bidding was just simply pathetic. The four women locked eyes briefly before Rosie grabbed Joanne by the arm. She wasn't ready for a dramatic confrontation yet. God damn it, Joanne. Why does that bitch have to be the first thing I see when I walk through the doors? I don't know how I'm going to get through this service without a drink. It looks like they have punch, soda, or red wine, Rosie. Ugh, I hate red wine. It always stains my teeth. It's bad enough I have to be in the same room as Sister Pignica. Do I have to walk around looking like I have gingivitis, too? I can run to the store and get you some gin if you want. It'll only take a bit. And leave me alone with those two. Not on your life. Plus, if there's anyone here who needs to make an appearance, it's you. Need I remind you that we wouldn't be here if... Yes, Rosie, I know it's my fault that we're here, but... Could you keep your voice down about it, please? I'm... I'm a nervous wreck. You need to get yourself under control. Put on a mournful look and keep that bitch as far from me as possible. It's not above me to cause a scene at a funeral. We can't exactly fly under the radar if you're clawing Sister Indica's eyes out, Rosie. What do you mean, we? You're the one who killed Giovanni. I'm just your wonderful boss and friend who is helping you cover it up. I mean, if you were in prison, who'd get my dry cleaning? Rosie, my nerves are shot. Can we just make our appearance, pay our respects, and leave? I can't take everyone's eyes on me. I feel like I have murderer tattooed all over my face. Why did you have to kill Giovanni and not her? And who wears mink indoors, anyway? New money is always so tacky. What about that could possibly be appealing to Seymour? You know, I can barely even remember that night. I was so messed up from that ayahuasca tea you made me. Everything's a blur. But you're always so high-strung. I thought if you could meet your spirit guides, it might calm you down some. Give your life some clarity. How the hell did I know it would make you kill someone? Okay, okay. Enough of the K-word. Can we please just get on with this? Rosie reached deep into her Chanel handbag and pulled out a round blue pill. Here, take this. What is it? It's a Valium. Should calm you down. But if it does something crazy to you, don't worry. I'm armed. Ha ha. Very funny. Joanne gulped down the pill. If only she'd taken it sooner. As luck would have it, Sister Indica and Pandora were heading right their way. Rosie Bush, how considerate of you to show up. Too bad Giovanni hated you. He had no opinions of you, Joanne, but Rosie, yeah, he couldn't stand you. And neither can I. So why the hell are you here? I'm so sorry for your loss, dear sister. And of course I'm referring to Giovanni, not your weight. Even Helen Keller could see that you've been eating your feelings again. You know, Rosie, I've always admired your dedication to that hair color. What flavor Kool-Aid are you using to get that shade of red? Really, girl? You coming for her wig? <laughs> okay, Trudeau. Oh, go to hell, Pandora. 
And you, Indica, my husband's taste in women sure has cheapened. Exactly what magazine did you find that perfume sample in? First of all, it's Sister Indica. We're not close enough for you to address me so informally. And secondly, Seymour is your ex-husband. You're divorced. He's mine now. After all these years, he's found a woman who can satisfy him. Don't you want him to be happy? Finally. What I want is you in that casket, but sadly it's occupied by Giovanni. I don't think it's your size anyway. Overhearing the drama, Lily Banks wedged herself between Sister Indica and Rosie. Ladies, ladies, that is enough. For the love of St. Nora, you're at a funeral. Try and show some decorum in class, if such a thing is possible. I'm sorry, Mrs. Banks. I was just leaving. But before I go, Rosie, Joanne, I trust I'll see you both at my annual Christmas soiree. It's also a fundraiser for St. Nora's orphans, so make sure to bring your checkbooks. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Rosie watched as her enemies left the warmth of the church for the blustering snow. She prayed that an avalanche would bury her nemesis. But if she wasn't so lucky, and history had shown that she wasn't, perhaps a bullet could do the trick. A bullet from her own gun. Oh, she wouldn't miss this Christmas soiree. Sister Indica's very last Christmas. What the hell do you think you're doing? Dragging your butt through the day, selling body and soul to a bunch of bland normals? Acting stupid so they'll think you're one of them? Tired of getting all of the guilt, but none of the sex? There is a simple answer, dear friend. A glowing beacon of slack amidst the turmoil and darkness. It's J.R. Bob Dobbs, the living slack master in his church of the subgenius. Bob brings a new destiny for the abnormal, for Bob comes to justify our sins, to unmask the conspiracy, and to get us back the slack they stole away. It's us versus them. Are you gonna fry in hell on earth alongside the pink boys? Or will you pull the wool over your own eyes and accept Bob into your mind? Repent, quit your job, slack off, and praise Bob! Church of the Subgenius Eternal Salvation or Triple Your Money Back. You're not dreaming. You're here in the vast and technologically advanced OSI 74 studios, where my co-host Miss Mittens and I, your host Mr. Lobo, are getting ready to host a brand new season of Cinema Insomnia. But this time, we want to get you Sinsomniacs involved. Please come join us at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash cinema insomnia, where you'll find Mr. Lobo is making your new TV shows, and we're involving you in the process. Even at the dollar level, you will have access to uh, exclusives that other Sinsomniacs aren't. You'll have access to Mr. Lobo that few Sinsomniacs get to enjoy. Uh, there'll be other perks at other tiers too. You'll be able to get props from the show, potentially. Uh, you'll be able to get um, your name in the credits, perhaps. Uh, maybe you could uh, bend steel bars with your bare hands. 
levitate cars, fly. I mean, think of it, anything is possible if you come, be a part, and join our inner sweet, double-stuffed, deep, salty, caramel, double-dipped, gooey center super core. And um, Mr. Lobo's getting hungry all of a sudden, but uh, look, you hit the subscribe bar, Mr. Lobo's gonna hit the snack bar, and, and we'll see you later for a brand new season of Cinema and Sound.